Hello, my guest today is a good friend of mine, Liz Clausen. Liz is a double bass player based out of Chicago, and earlier this year I had the great opportunity to work with her on a new piece of music for double bass and guitar. As always, remember to like, subscribe, and leave a comment, and if you like my content generally and would like to support it, please consider visiting my Patreon page. Welcome to Music in Mind with Anthony Calkins. So uh, we're here today with an old friend of mine, Liz Clawson. <laughs> we we must have met like almost ten years ago, right? About so. something like that in uh, in music school at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Liz is a bass player, and do you consider yourself tied to any specific like genre or anything like that? Like not really classical bass player. I was jazz always. Player? I, I would say I'm a classical bass player, but I was sort of taught to not not limit myself to right. any genre. Richard always tells people, it was Richard Davis. my bass teacher, yeah. that uh, you play the bass. Yeah. So when people ask, I just say I play the bass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you, uh, but you gravitate towards classical music, would you say? I would say that's probably the genre I'm most comfortable in because okay. that's the genre I've had the most education in and the most time. Sure. Most ensembles. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so you, you have a degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yes. Undergraduate degree in bass. In music education. Oh, With okay. a certificate in entrepreneurship. A lot of oh, the music cool. majors yeah, didn't yeah. know that about me, but I was actually also getting a, a certificate's kind of like a minor. It was about mm -hmm. 15 credits. Okay. Um, so I was over in the business school for one class a semester. Okay. Yeah, actually, I've been talking to a lot of people about the importance of entrepreneurship. Yeah. For music. Do you feel like that program helped you a lot? So I was an odd duck, I guess, during my schooling and just, I guess, in life in some ways. Like, a lot of people have not really understood why I chose to do a lot of the things I do. Mm -hmm. For me, I sort of label myself as um, a musician, an educator, and an arts administrator because I do things okay. in all three of those fields. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of realized in high school that someone had to run things. And I was like, oh, maybe I could yeah. do that. Like, maybe I would be good at that. Yeah. But there was no real way for me to figure out how to do that in, an, in undergrad. So I got into school and I wanted to do music education because I knew that I wanted the skills to teach. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure that public school teaching was going to be the right fit for me. I really yeah. don't like waking up early. Um, yeah, when I was same. student teaching, I had to wake up at like 4.30 in the morning. It was really... It's this thing. Just it's so hard. Mornings, I yeah. the same thing. It's like, I'll stay out late, I'll play late, yeah. and I just want, I don't want to get up early. And as a musician, it's tough because you often have gigs on in, at night and on right. weekends. So like when, if you're teaching public school and you're trying to gig, that can be very exhausting. Yeah. Plus the class sizes are so big. For me, it's a stimulus thing too. Like having uh, in a public school orchestra program, your combined orchestra for high school is probably anywhere from 25 to 75 kids. 75? Yeah, and so like that one of my schools was close to that size for the sophomore through senior orchestra. They have the freshman orchestra and then they have the combined high school orchestra. And um, it's overwhelming to have yeah. that many kids in front of you to not have like, um, a planning period. Luckily we did, but a lot of the jobs I was looking at, you wouldn't have that. And so I you just have to come in and 
Yeah, exactly. You just have to kind of plan around that in your mm -hmm. schedule. You may not have a home room um, for the elementary school position in the same district, um, which came open right around the time when I graduated. I considered taking it, but I would have had three to five schools I would have been traveling between with no homeroom and no prep period and right. about 20 kids at each school. So it was just, I didn't think it was the most ideal. And I knew from teaching in that district that their elementary school program met in the mornings at 6.30. So again, 630? yeah, it was before school that the elementary school kids yeah, yeah, would have their stuff. So it, it was just not huh. ideal. Yeah. I felt like it wasn't the right fit. But I wanted those skills, knowing how to um, like scaffold, how to plan a lesson, okay. understanding how people learn at different ages and what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Those are skills I still use all the time in everything I do. Um, and then I didn't know how to do the arts admin stuff, so I started uh, doing the certificate in entrepreneurship because it fit into my schedule. Mm -hmm. I realized early on that getting into the business school and doing a double major would not work it would be too much work yeah, yeah. and it would be really difficult so this was kind of my balance where i got to take like intro to finance intro to accounting intro to business wow. management yeah, all that stuff, stuff. Yeah, right. yeah and it was it, it was kind of nice that it wasn't focused on arts it was just sort of general business because um, it gave me a different perspective mm -hmm. and then at the same time um one of the reasons I was so thankful I went to the University of Wisconsin is because I got to start doing arts admin during my undergrad. Okay. So I was the orchestral librarian for a few years, mm -hmm. um, and that was great because I learned a lot about what right. librarians have to yeah. do. I got sort of a back-end view of the orchestra, um, and then also I was working for the Wisconsin Union Theater. Oh, um, right. yeah, and it's cool. a lot of the bass studio worked yeah, for them. I think, yeah, I remember yeah that. we kind of had a little political machine of bass players that would all work at the Union Theater. Is that theater. still true? I don't think it is, unfortunately. Okay. I think the dynasty died with me. Okay. <laughs> uh, we didn't have many undergrads after me. There yeah. was a, sort of a lull. We had a couple, but yeah. I think um, that was kind of where it ended for us. And, oh. But uh, it was great because I learned so much about um, touring artists and booking mm -hmm. concert series and sort of all of the logistics, the administrative side of things. Yeah. And I started to get a firsthand feel for it. They're very good about letting students do all the programming. I was planning their, the artists itineraries. I was introducing them at concerts. That's great. Yeah. So I was really, um, getting firsthand skills from an early age. It also helps you if you're trying to book later, yes. it shows you what it's like on the other end. Yeah. yeah, I've, yeah. I've really, I got a good understanding of a few parts of arts admin. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went on to the summer after I graduated, I, was just looking for the next step, the next was this job. 2014? Yeah. yeah, so in the summer of 2014, I was um, looking for a job and I ended up working part time for the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra mm, nice. as an assistant stage manager. So I was driving their truck. Yeah, I remember that yeah. job listing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> remember I was, seeing it. It was a lot of fun. I'd never driven a truck before, so I was really nervous, yeah. but I got the hang of it. I had a good co, co driver. Nice. Um, a great stage manager. So what, what did you drive? Was this like hauling equipment to gigs yeah, and stuff? It was, to, um, concerts? Yeah, it was like all the chairs and stands. They had a different organization that set up the actual stage and all of the sound equipment. Okay. That was all the sound guys. It was a, a different company. Uh -huh. okay. And then we would come in once they set up the stage and we would set up all of the chairs and stands, all of the sandbags because they're outside mm -hmm. to make sure the stands don't right. fall over all of the sound shields for the musicians, mm -hmm. like if you're near brass players right, and it's right. too loud, 
um, all the percussion equipment, all of that stuff was our, our job. And then I would help to make sure that we stayed on time, um, that our breaks were 15 minutes long, nice. that kind yeah, of yeah. stuff, all the union regulations. Yeah. So again, I got like another view of how orchestras mm -hmm. run from a, like a very first-hand place. And then I worked at um, a local music store for a year. I worked at Ward Brat. So then I got another view of like... Good Madison spot. Yeah, <laughs> a typical Madison spot. So yeah. I got a view of like how um, school runouts go, how you size kids for instruments, uh -huh. how um, a lot of local music stores work with schools to do rentals and things like right. that. And I got some very basic knowledge of like electric guitars and oh, electronics and pianos and drum kits and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I went and did my master's right. in performance in Tucson. Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> that's my long... How was that? That was very interesting. Um, so I, I had this administrative experience, very basic stuff, and I had um, my ed degree, but I, I felt like um, I wasn't getting to focus as much on performing, mm -hmm. and I missed it. And so I, I wanted a chance to just focus on that for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually a perfect blend for me. The teacher there, um, his name is Phil Alejo, okay. and he um, knew Richard, my undergraduate mm -hmm. professor, through Richard's youth-based conference. He has a youth-based conference every Easter. Okay. So that's how I knew Phil, and um, Phil had studied with um, a woman named Diana Gannett, who I really admire, and I had really wanted to study with her, but she was kind of coming to the end of her um, time at Michigan, University of okay. Michigan. Yeah. So I wasn't going to be able to make it before she retired. Yeah. Um, and Phil had an open assistantship. So I was going to be able to go back to school and not be in debt and work That's, with someone yeah, who perfect. really knew like the style that I was going yeah. for, who I really admired and I got along well with. Mm -hmm. So we had a great working relationship and I got to focus more on my playing and the nice thing about being um, a teaching assistant is that I got to teach in different arenas. So I right. was teaching really young beginning violin students Okay. Uh, in like their local string project. Sure. Yeah. Fun. yeah. Violin and cello and I had one bass player who was about eight or nine. Um, oh. he was, so the bass is like... He, he, his family bought him a half-size bass and okay. I was so nervous the first lesson because I had to hold it by the scroll so it wouldn't... He could barely <laughs> hold the instrument yeah. up and I was afraid that it was just slightly too big for him. Yeah. But it, it just barely worked and then by the second lesson he was holding it himself like he wasn't wobbling yeah, so much. Good. He had worked on his stance. That's so much fun. Yeah, it was it was really fun yeah, to get to like start a kid and, and see well, how it, he grew. It's, it's fun, the idea of having a kid build those bass sensibilities young. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's my problem as a guitar player where people are like, can you play bass, guitar? Yeah. yeah, I mean, kind sort of. of. <laughs> like, I can technically play it, but I don't have, I don't think about it, right? I don't yeah. have the right sensibilities. That's kind of how I even feel as an upright bass player playing yeah. electric bass, is mm -hmm. that I, I didn't have many lessons on electric bass. I don't feel like I play it right. Right. Which, like, there is no right way to do anything, really. Yeah. There's, like, a, a typical practiced way, but that's not necessarily, like... Yeah, people everyone. play it all sorts of ways. Yeah, and I can read music and I can play it, but I play it like an upright, so I think um, across and up a, a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> than I think like, um, I think on the electric bass you have to think across yeah. in, in blocks mm -hmm. more, mm -hmm. and I, I like, I'm not, that's not the first way my brain works when yeah. I think bass. It's the problem I have when writing for violin. Yeah. And actually, and, and upright bass, I don't yeah. know if you've noticed how I write, but uh, 
Yeah, I think for all string instruments in like positions. Yeah, because that's a lot of the way we're taught. Mm -hmm. um, but the way we're taught positions on the upright, I think, is different than on the electric. And so I think sense. like I'm playing an upright on the electric. So I'm not the most efficient, I guess. Yeah. And I don't feel as strong when it comes to improvising or creating my own bass lines in terms of, I think a lot in fifths, which is fine, and yeah. octaves, but I don't think, and like a little bit thirds, but I don't think um, like in sixths as much. I, I don't see. think like in filling like, out. Yeah, I, I don't think um, across as much. I think right. sort of up. Okay. Over and up, which cool. is more how like an orchestral bass player would play a lot of things, I mm -hmm. think, or like how you're first taught to play the bass. Yeah. So. so so I also have a master's degree and I, I'm always like I'm a little ambivalent about what it's for. Yeah. So I because I'm in this spot where all of the jobs I do, mm -hmm. I don't need any degrees for. Yeah. No one ever asks me about it. Exactly. Degree. So I never like the value of a music degree is weird. I don't know. <laughs> I think the value of a music degree doesn't fit into like American consumer society because it's not right. well, there's for, no job there's no direct yeah payout. yeah for me a music ed degree was it had a direct payout and right. I got it's, a license from the yeah, state exactly. at the end yeah. and I don't have that license anymore I didn't keep up with it mm -hmm. but that was sort of like there is a, a known value but I think there's a lot of intrinsic value and for me that was a big part of why I went and got my master's was like I, you know, life is short and yeah. <laughs> I care about this thing and I want to do it to the best of my abilities. And this was a way for me to, to focus on something I cared about. But I had a lot of privilege in that I got a, an assistantship. So I right. didn't have to take on debt to do that. Yeah, I couldn't have done that otherwise. Yeah. Um, and, and it also seems like you were in a program that was really like you wanted the experience with you wanted the learning experience with the teacher and the pushing you to perform more. Yeah. And it seems like you had a program that was good for that. I wanted to grow my skills and I had a person who understood my previous learning right. and was able to take me to the next level in mm -hmm. a, in a really good way. Did you, so do you feel like your master's was a way for you to learn more or a way for you to start to sort of be yourself, so to speak, or um, both maybe? A little bit of both. I think for me, it was a lot more of a technical foundation. Okay. Um, my undergraduate teacher, Richard, is really, he's very focused on the individual and right. sort of cultivating mm -hmm. the individual sound and style. Um, and so I think I had already done a lot of that, but I think I felt like I was lacking a lot of technical foundation. Yeah, yeah. And so um, Phil yeah, was able to, to do a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, the, the, the composition program at UW-Madison was like that, too. So the, the person yeah. I worked with was uh, Steve Dembski, and yeah. it was a it was a similar kind of thing. Was, he didn't he didn't want to tell you what to do, just yeah. sort of help you do what you want to do. But then I came out like I don't know how to write a song, I don't know how to write a fugue, I, like I don't know the what's considered the basic technique of composition. Yeah, I look back at videos of myself at the end of my undergraduate, and yeah. I feel like I was such a strong player in that I was so musical, yeah. and I was really good at projecting mm -hmm. and sort of like putting myself into my music. But I feel like I, I lacked some technical skills, like in thumb position, I collapsed a lot. Sure. Um, things like that, so hand frame stuff. Yeah. And Phil really drove that stuff in with me. Mm -hmm. um, and now I feel like I'm having to reverse and kind of um, I took a long time off, so I'm, I'm kind of rebuilding those skills, mm -hmm. but also trying to find my voice again cool. in my playing. 
So you just went on like a mini tour, yes. right? With uh, Eric. Yeah. Yeah, Eric Chipple, you the classical guitar player. He's yes. in Rochester right now, yes. right? Okay. Cool. So Eric is Eric Chipple is um, at Rochester. I met him at the same time, kind yeah. of that I met you, or a couple years later. He was doing his masters while I was finishing my undergrad. Uh-huh. So all three of us were at Wisconsin together. Yes. And then he went to Eastman. Um, right. to study and he texted me about a year ago and he was like hey I want to do some duos would you be interested yeah and I was like yeah and I'll, I'll one-up you do you want to play at the International Society of Bassists convention yeah. we could apply yeah and and do a recital there yeah. yeah so he was like okay I'm game and then I was like knowing kind of the ISB something that always helps um, a presentation is to have something that's very different from what's yeah. typically presented and guitar and bass duos are not typically presented. There's not as much chamber music um, often uh-huh. presented at the bass conference. So There's a lot of solos? A lot of solo stuff, a lot of stuff on teaching or right. things like that. Um, master classes, there's yeah, lots of master classes. Um, there's competitions that are going on. They have mm-hmm. jazz, classical, um, a com- composition competition, which mm-hmm. you entered once. <laughs> and, uh, that's right. uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, other things like that going on. Yeah. Um, and so we had a, a unique presentation and then we also, I knew that if we did a premiere that would help as well. Yeah. So then I roped you in yeah. <laughs> to write us a piece. Yeah. Um, and I felt comfortable doing that cause we had worked together yeah. before. And I actually think that the way you write for bass is good oh, compared to a good. lot of composers, um, who don't have a background with the bass. They just don't know. Right. They have sort of only whatever they got during their composition courses. Yeah. And a lot of that can be a bit of misinformation. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, a lot of composers don't think about how it's going to be played. Yeah, exactly. And they don't think about the, the timbre of the instrument mm-hmm. or the volume of the instrument. Yeah. And this was a perfect duo because the bass... Did it work, by the way? It worked okay, really that's well. Okay, Yeah, it worked very well. I haven't well. heard it yet. So. We were really worried because... Um, <laughs> like putting it together, we just wanted it to sound very good, you yeah, know, and yeah. like I I was working all week. I also worked yeah. at the base conference. So yeah. like I was kind of running on low the night before yeah. and we were practicing and I was just very nervous about like, is this going to fit together well? Is it going to come yeah. off well? But it did. So there was another premiere too, right? Just that. Yeah, oh, okay, that was the yeah. only premiere. Um, one of the other pieces we played had already been premiered, but there was no recording of oh, it. Oh, okay. There was just a recording of one of the movements, and we did two of the three movements. It's by Sarana Chow. So okay. That was the other piece that was kind of like new to audiences. Yeah. And both your pieces were inter- interesting because they both required extended techniques. Uh-huh. Hers requires us to tap on the bodies sure. of our instruments, and yours required us to tap, do sort of like left hand or right hand taps right hand, on the yeah. strings. Yeah. Um, so do you consider that an extended technique? I do because okay. it's not something that um, is comes across regularly in a lot of bass pieces. Um, and it's not something that like necessarily we study to do yeah, in school. Yeah, that makes sense. Or not extensively, at least. Right. I have this kind of thing against the idea of extended techniques. Yeah. Like, just a, it's a thing, you do it, you know. Like, yeah, I just label anything that's sort of outside of the, right. and I hate to say regular canon, but like outside well, of like is. the basics as an extended technique. Right. Even thumb position I would consider an extended technique. So on the bass, when you go up um, above the neck um, and you start to use your thumb, yeah. 
I consider that I see, yeah, an extended yeah, technique. Sense. So anything that's outside of like the very basics. I guess I was mean. thinking of it as almost uh, an electric bass technique. Yeah, that's it how does I was mirror that. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the the thumb slapping yeah, and stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it, to me, it mirrors a lot of the early bass playing um, on upright, where you're um, yeah, like the, you're slapping mm-hmm. at the same time that you're like pitching. Gypsy jazz stuff. Yeah, 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 or like early jazz. A yeah. lot of times preamplification. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that went well. We presented um, a few pieces, about 50 minutes worth of music. Mm -hmm. Um, We did a recital at ISB, and then we um, did a group muse here in this room in Chicago. Um, And group muse is where you you have people come into your house, and um, you can present a recital to them of whatever kind of chamber music or solo music you would like. And they pay you, so right. it's a, a great way for musicians who maybe can't, um, don't have as much power to, to book in a, a larger right. venue to still get their music heard, to mm-hmm. still present, and to get some payment, which is good because Eric was coming from yeah. New York yep, yep. to the Midwest to play with me. Yeah. Um, and then we went up to Madison, and we played at a senior home, mm-hmm. and we played at a local bar for a happy hour. Um, those were both interesting because, again, we have two very quiet instruments um, and we were playing two very contemporary pieces. Um, so the chow and your piece both required like some slapping. Mm-hmm. Um, they are somewhat atonal or have a outside of like the, the Western, sure. yeah, yeah, like yeah. very typical tonality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all about 5-1, yeah. you know. Um, and then we played Spanish dances, and um, we also played a piece that's very um, like Eastern European in style. Okay. Um, so those two were received well by the older folks in the senior <laughs> home, but they really did not like that's the contemporary good. pieces. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Uh, it was kind of stressful when we showed up. I was like, this is not a good idea. Yeah, one lady, <laughs> I hate to say this, that's but one okay. lady at the end of your piece was like, play that a little more upbeat next time. Upbeat? Yeah, like, she just didn't like, yeah, I don't know what she was expecting. I think she thought we were playing it wrong or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. And every time Eric spoke to the audience at the senior home, this one woman in the in the front kept going like this and rolling her eyes. Wow. Like she she didn't want him to talk. Yeah. So that was it. She's like, all right. A a good reminder that there are certain pieces that are better received by certain audiences. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's interesting. Yeah, but still worth doing. Uh, there were plenty of people at the senior home who really enjoyed it. So it was sure. a definitely a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, well received at ISB though. People really liked. That's cool. Um, I think because again, there's not as much chamber music presented. Mm-hmm. People really like thinking about ways bass can be part of chamber music, and it's something that's becoming more part of my life as a performer too. Now that I'm out of school, um, yeah. I have the option of going through the very laborious process of getting into regional orchestras through mm-hmm. auditions. Yeah. And while I will do that, because I do love orchestral music, it's nice to do chamber music because I have a lot more independence. I get to choose who I play with and what I play, and I get to really pursue stuff that I find interesting and meaningful. Yeah, you build a connection. Yeah. It's the thing that's interesting about group muse to me. Yeah. Especially for, like, the chamber music world. And uh, I think it's interesting how scenes and communities are built with music. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like there's this whole thing in classical music where people are very disconnected 
from audiences. Yes. Even 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 orchestras. The orchestra comes on stage and the audience is there and there's like something kind of like perfunctory about it yes. and not not engaging. There's sort of a tradition that's still there. Um, I think in the same way that a lot of people feel like they need to get jazz, that there's something to understand. Right. Um, and that sort of builds up this this um, barrier yeah, between does. the audience and the and the performers. I think classical music has that too, that people feel that it's not for them because they have to understand something. Or even more so, that they don't look like anyone who's performing or that it doesn't, the composers don't represent them. They're sure. old. They're yeah. all yeah, yeah. older European dead yeah. white dudes. Yeah, so that's like true. that's not America anymore in a lot right. of ways. Or it's only one small portion of America. Yeah. I think that affects audiences as well. Even for me, as yeah. even though I have the privilege of being white as a woman, I don't see, you know I think it was I I didn't play a piece written by a female composer till mm. college, if even then. Yeah, I mean that's probably Every, not yeah. everybody, but most people's experience. And lots of orchestras have, like in the top 10 symphony orchestras, I think we have about eight women out of about 100. If you have about, for, or 80, 80. So if you have about bass eight, sections, mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, for bass sections. So okay. if you have about eight to 10 players in an orchestra and 10 orchestras, maybe, you know, there's one, maybe, yeah. if you're lucky. And so I didn't see myself either. Right, and course, even as yeah. someone who studied classical music and who has a, a very built-in love for it, it's hard to feel like um, it's for you. Right, it's dis you're disconnected from yeah, it. Yeah, I, and it was interesting to step into hip-hop because at the end of my undergraduate, mm -hmm. um, one of our other friends who you interviewed and who uh, yeah. was in the composition studio yeah, yeah, was Max Perkins, yeah. who plays drums, and yeah. like he and I were in a hip hop band together that was a very large group of students. Mm -hmm. It wasn't music majors, it was a lot of creative writing majors. Right. And they made some of the most um, interesting and impactful music, like yeah. some of the best art I had ever experienced. And mm -hmm. I was so thankful to get to be part of that. But also like our music was naturally relevant to people. We didn't right. have to argue for why we should exist or why we should be yeah. there. People just came and yeah. they felt an experience you know, with us. Mm -hmm. And that was very eye-opening coming from a very like classical background of like, how can orchestras be more like this? Yeah. So it's something I think about all the time from an arts administration background too, mm -hmm. is like, um, how can we really start to change our model for orchestras? Do you have an idea? Oh, well, there's so many things that are happening now. Right. In the past 10 years or so, a lot of orchestras have gone bankrupt. Yeah. A lot of them have seen their traditional model sort of um, fade away, which is that you have subscribers mm -hmm. who buy tickets in bulk at the beginning of the season. Right. And that helps you to amass a certain amount of money through ticket sales at the beginning sure. of the season. Um, and then you also have endowments. Right. And a lot of people donate. They give you yeah, yeah. large sums of money. Um, a lot of foundations donate. And all of those things are shrinking at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, endowments are getting smaller. People are not leaving their wills. They're not leaving like tons right. of money to orchestras. Um, or they don't have the giving power. Our tax structure has changed so that sure. it doesn't benefit people in the same way that it used to. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like our generation doesn't even subscribe really to newspapers. Or anything, so it's no, hard to. No, content should be yeah. free. How all do you the time. convince someone who thinks content should be free to pay to go see an oh, orchestra? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, so that model is changing. And orchestras are expensive. 
Uh huh. There's so much cost yeah. that goes into an orchestra that people really don't think about. Even aside from the musicians, who are a very important cost, that they spend their whole life right. learning this thing at an extremely high level. And, you know, you have to pay a, a salary that compensates for the amount of work that's being done. Right. But also there's things like just having a theater running, operating for mm -hmm. two hours is extremely expensive. Yeah, of course. The cost of the lighting and all of the union mm -hmm. um, workers who have to do all of the stage management yep. and all of the sound system and all of that stuff is, is extremely expensive too. Yep. So it's interesting to see the way people are trying to capture younger audiences. I think the other thing that people don't realize is that um, a lot of orchestras are reporting more um, first-time concertgoers than ever. But they're really? just not coming back. They're just coming once. It's like oh, an no, experience yeah, that you try once. <laughs> yeah. So how yeah. do you get that audience to come back is a whole other thing. So do you think orchestras are important? I do. I think okay. that orchestras matter, and I really think it's silly when people say that classical music is dead. Sure. I don't think it is. I think I mean, it's calling struggling. classical music is probably yeah. a good way to make it sound dead. Yeah. And again, it like... It sounds old. It sounds like it's from back then. Yeah. Going back to genres, it's like really tough to say. I just think genres can be very limiting sometimes, too. Yeah. Um, and classical music, a lot of contemporary or modern classical music doesn't sound like classical music to us anymore. Right. Um, and so to say that it's dead, I think it's just changed I in a lot of ways. I Things think, are changing. Yeah. There is, an, the, there is an aspect to a lot of big orchestras that feels sort of dead or museum-y to me. Yes. Especially when it's put in relief where they do the one contemporary piece. Yes. And so they're still doing all the lists and Brahms and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, they have their one piece for a concert or their, like, five pieces for a season or something. And then... It seems like they're they're putting into relief how dead they are. Yes, and this is interesting that you bring this up because again, this was something I struggled with a lot and started to think about during my undergrad working at the Union Theater is that um, I am representing the student body in that role and I'm getting to help choose the concert series for the next year. So I'm thinking about what would entice a person my age to go to a classical concert. Like what do right. young people want? And I asked a bunch of kids in the music school and within my own network what they wanted. Um, and that sort of uh, swayed my decision to include Rachel Barton Pine okay. in the following year um, to kind of push to bring her because she was someone that a lot of them liked, mm -hmm. knew about, felt was relevant. relevant. Uh, and then there were other things I really wanted that we yeah. couldn't do. Um, I gave a bunch of suggestions for two years out because mm -hmm. it was a, like our 85th season or a very big anniversary season. So we had to plan ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, and there were arguments about, or not arguments, but discussions about like what are subscribers going to want? What's right. going to get butts and seats that pay for tickets? Yeah. And I was like, well, who are we serving? Are we serving those, yeah. those subscribers or are we serving the student body? What's our goal here? Yeah. What is our mission? Yeah. Because they inherently want different things. Yeah. I wanted to bring 8th Blackbird because uh -huh. they yeah. had just won a Grammy. They're very young. You weren't able to? They're very hip. Yeah, there was some pushback that oh, I see. They, they might fit the model of things that we would be interested in bringing, but yeah. that um, subscribers would not be as interested. Older 
older audiences. I know, I was surprised. Yeah. And then another group that we ended it up like bringing. A yeah, it it's, does it's to like me. It, I understand mm -hmm. the mentality. Like, it makes sense that you need the money. You want something but it's safe. Like, it's this chasing your audience, I mm -hmm. think, is always a mistake. And, and then everything gets worse. <laughs> When you do it. The other funny thing is we were looking for someone to come and play with us and with the local symphony to do mm. a week-long residency and on either end, sort of like bookends, have Madison concerts. Symphony? Yeah. Was, okay. And they were very interested in bringing Emmanuel Axe, who had, and mm -hmm. we wanted people who had a history with us. So Yo-Yo Ma has played with right. the Union Theater, cool. Emmanuel Axe has. There were names like that that were being brought out, and I was the youngest person in the room. And I kept saying, like, you know, every year when you look at the Madison Symphony's list, the only soloists that they often have are pianists, cellists, and violinists. Yeah. And that's, it's not just pretty them. It's it, pretty yeah. much every orchestra yeah. does that. Well, it's all the good concertos. That's good. like the good, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what we value. But again, yeah. it's like we're, we're stuck in this sort of system that that's yeah. what gets butts in seats. Yeah. But it gets boring. I'm not sure that our audience, like younger people, are I think it's as boring interested. for everybody. I think it is. I think it's boring for the old people too. I think it's everyone sitting there going, uh, when this is over, can we go get a drink? Can and we go some get people ice cream? love and it so much, it. but I'm not one of those people. I'm a bass but player. what do they love? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't get it. But. In the same way that like a lot of the classical canon has like very lovable, meaningful moments. There's yeah, things course. I love about Beethoven and Brahms, but I, mean, I don't want to just hear that forever and always. Exactly. So it's like thinking about this idea of like how do we how do we structure an environment that's more comfortable for people? Yeah. How do we sort of make orchestras represent the audience in a more meaningful way? Mm -hmm. And what we're booking sort of yeah. represent people's interests? Who are we serving? Those I mean, what, types of what things. What is music about? Yeah. I mean, it's this thing where like to me, music is about a communication between people. Yeah. It's like so I have a, I have a lot of friends who work in artificial intelligence and yeah. music. So I have a friend in music. Yeah, I have a friend who's building a robot that scores films. Really, like it watches the film and it can recognize characters and it can make light motifs for different That's characters. That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. But also, I don't give a shit about a score written by a robot. Yeah. Like it's neat. It's like cool to hear once, but I don't care about the music then. I and have I no connection to it. And I wonder how it would compare to something that is made by a human. Right. But that's why I'm interested in it. Because yeah. a person made it. I'm yeah. interested in a person's output. Yeah. I don't care what a robot does. Exactly. It might be interesting in hip. Um, it's neat. Yeah. It's like cool. It's a cool trick. I would have to listen to it to really know if it was something I related to. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, it's a whole, I am endlessly fascinated by this problem and in sort of figuring out how, what the next steps look like. Something that's fascinating um, that both Madison and Chicago have are outdoor concert series in the summer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me then, after working at the Union Theater, going to uh, concerts on the Square, which the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra does every Wednesday night during the summer, they get, I think, audiences sometimes as large as ten to 15,000 people all the way around the Capitol. Yeah, that's true. On the lawn. Yeah. But a lot of those people are not there for the music. They're there no, for the experience. It, 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 yeah, right. And then it's they cool. get the music. And it was interesting nice. to work with an executive director who was very understanding of that yeah. and understanding of his orchestra and really wanted to find a way to build something, like build on what they had, this tradition in a way that was both meaningful for the musicians and like added value for the community. Yeah. Um, he was that's willing good. to invest in more speakers. Um, I don't know if they ended up 
with like video monitors, but that was something I think they had discussed is maybe putting uh-huh. screens at other ends oh, of the Capitol nice. yeah, so yeah. you could see what was going that on. Good. I don't know if that, I don't think that happened. I haven't been there in a long time. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, just making people more aware or kind of programming things that are meaningful and interesting to those audiences. Yeah. Um, the Grant Park Music Festival happens in Chicago mm-hmm. down at um, Jay Pritzker Pavilion every, every summer. Okay. And they get thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of people, which is interesting because we say classical music is dead and that it's not relevant and people don't care, but that's a free concert that's outside. Mm-hmm. So many people go. Yeah. And you can argue, are they there for the music? And it's like, well, maybe not, but the experience is definitely a more relaxed experience Sure. in an environment that's perhaps more accessible for classical music. Yeah. So I think true. the better question for people is, how do we get this audience that seems so comfortable with this into the concert hall. Yeah. Or how do we get them to consume classical music in a way that's meaningful to them? Maybe a concert hall is not the right venue because yeah. clearly so many of them will come to an outdoor concert, mm-hmm. but maybe yeah, maybe point. not go to the CSO or to Lyric or other large mm-hmm. venues. Yeah, yeah. So it's fascinating to look at mm-hmm. and think about. And it's really something that like drives me a lot, has always been a big part of why I do Arts Admin. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> think about it all the time. I never really have an answer for what, to, what to do with classical music. I think that's mind. how a lot of big problems go, is there's a lot of small solutions, but how you like change a whole system or a culture is, is very difficult. Right. So I'm still thinking about it, too. Because like Taylor Swift is obviously highly valuable <laughs> to our culture. Is she? Yeah, everybody loves it. People give all sorts of money. Or and... they give her a lot of attention. I'm not sure everyone loves her. Some people well, love not, to not hear her. Not everyone loves her, but people... <laughs> are willing to pay a lot of money. Yeah. Lots of people are willing to pay a lot of money. Or Beyonce. So, they, so they're willing, right, exactly. So they're willing to give money. So sort of from an economic idea, like it, they produce value yeah. or something like that. How can the New York Phil produce the same kind of value that Taylor Swift does or Beyonce? Yeah, yeah. which is hard. like, I, I mean, and I, I mean, they shouldn't produce the same kind of value. And that's sort of like a business way of looking at it too, which is tough with arts. I don't think arts should be run like a biz, like you have to think about them differently, of yeah, course. Yeah, I think so. I think they both have value intrinsically. So like to say that how can one generate value is, is problematic because they both generate meaningful value that sure, can't be measured. Sure, of course, that's true. But then how do you get the same kind of box office output? How do you get the same kind of financial turnaround or emotion, that Taylor Swift emotional has? connection to it, maybe. Yeah, or like more what I'm how thinking. do you break down those barriers that keep people from buying tickets to the CSO when they buy tickets to see Taylor Swift or things like that? Right. Yeah. Like. Like, I know people who will spend hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. on electronic music festivals, but won't spend a cent on a classical. On a classical, music. yeah. And that's a whole interesting but thing. But that's okay. I mean, everybody can consume whatever music they want. Exactly. But then how do you get people to see that there's nothing scary about classical music or that it's meaningful to them? Right. That it can be meaningful to them? I mean, them. I think what you were saying before is the, the idea of there being sort of a right way to understand it and a right way to listen to it is a big problem. Yeah. And I've always felt that with jazz, too. Again, this idea that there's something to get or understand. Right, like, who's going to an electronic music concert and, like, being like, well, I, you know, like, trying to analyze They like it or they don't, yeah. They're in it. Yeah. They're vibing. Yeah, exactly. You can do that with any music. Exactly. And I think that we're not taught to think about some of the more formal, like, studied conservatory genres in that way. Yeah. 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 Cool. I think about it all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So do you have anything else that mm-hmm. big going on in your life? So after my master's, 
Um, I took actually two years off from playing bass. So oh, wow. this recent recital was a big deal to me because it was my first time performing live for anyone for after two years. Two years. That's yeah, so that was like a, a big emotional thing. I was feeling a lot of anxiety about mm -hmm. being rusty and getting back into yeah, it. And for a while I was kind of avoiding my instrument because I was feeling so yeah. much anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to work through that and I'm very proud of how things went. Yeah. You know, they weren't perfect, but when is art ever and nor should art be Why perfect. perfect yes, yeah, I'm not striving for perfection. Perfect. Um, but I think it, there were beautiful, meaningful moments. Yeah. And there were no big train wrecks. We never once like completely lost each other or had a problem. You know, <laughs> like good. we stayed together and we made meaningful music Great. and people felt something. Did it feel from good it. playing together? Okay. Yeah. So that was all positive. And yeah. so from from here, it's kind of like, what do I do next artistically? Mm -hmm. Um, but also, I'm still working in arts administration. Okay. I work part-time for um, a local organization that's actually, it's fine arts in general, not just music. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting because I get to, I'm actually their only employee right now, so I'm doing everything. Like, yeah. I, I have my hands in everything. Okay. Um, so I'm at the next level administratively where I'm like, I'm learning how to operate a well, nonprofit. What do they do? So it's the Chinese Fine Arts Society. Okay. Um, it's a 35-year-old institution in, in Chicago. And um, the first thing that they ever did was a music competition, or like a music festival in honor of Confucius. Um, the oh, founder, cool. okay. her name is Barbara Chow. Um, she moved to Chicago. She's a piano accompanist. And she was seeing all these young kids play like Wynowski and... Beethoven mm -hmm. and Mozart at such high levels on their instruments, but they didn't know any Chinese music and she mm -hmm. was bothered by that. So she sure. started this competition where there's a pre-approved list of um, Chinese music and um, there's you can play any Western piece basically and you play both for the judges and it was a way to kind of expose young kids to um, music outside of the Western Great. canon. Yeah. yeah. So it's been really cool to see, to help with that. We still do it. We're in our 34th year, I think, of that. Mm -hmm. And then we do, they do a lot of concerts, like um, do a regular concert series. They used to, um, the organization's been a little bit smaller, so mm -hmm. we've been a little bit um, pared back in what we've been doing. But that's something we've traditionally done a lot of, is concert series. And it's okay, something we're cool. going to continue in the future as we grow. And is it still moving towards the like a combination of Western and non-Western music, or does, it, does it lean more on Chinese or East Asian music? There's um, a lot of Chinese or East Asian sort of composition. Right. Um, there are Western musicians okay. and traditional orchestral instruments that are part of it. Um, yeah. So it's sort of a balance of... Um, does it incorporate non-Western instruments? Yes. Okay. So having sort of a balance of Chinese instruments um, and Western instruments and Chinese music and... Okay. All that kind of stuff. So it's sort of same vein that we're just trying to, our mission is to sort of um, showcase Chinese fine arts mm -hmm. at a high level in a way that's cool. meaningful for yeah. Chicago audiences or Midwestern audiences. Yeah. And then the last thing, the other thing that we do, not the last, but one of many <laughs> other things we do is um, a lot of the programming for Chinese New Year in the city okay. of Chicago. Oh, cool. So February, late January and February are very big Busy, months for yeah. us. Yeah, we do a very lot of cool. stuff. So um, that's always a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And that's any, all kinds of acts. Um, Chinese yo-yo, acrobatics, uh -huh. martial arts, um, lion dance, 
traditional dance, all of that is in addition to musicians, is sort of being presented. So, Is there a pretty vibrant cross-cultural music scene in Chicago? Yes, okay. I would say there is. Cool. Or an art scene. Um, okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. Sorry, I just think yeah, of yeah. music, but I don't mean to... <laughs> it's interesting for me because I have to get out of my music for right. work. I'm thinking it's like better, yeah. larger mm -hmm. arts in general. Yeah. So I think uh, Chicago is blessed with having a very vibrant arts community in general, and that lends itself really well to a cross-cultural arts mm -hmm. community yeah. as well. And we're lucky that um, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, like I've seen them doing a lot of funding and, and hosting and helping of cross-cultural okay. events. So cool. there's definitely um, a lot more organizations here that are promoting it. Yeah. So it's been cool awesome. to see. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm at a new point in my life where I'm kind of balancing arts administration again, mm -hmm. teaching privately and playing again. Yeah. Um, with arts admin being my, my nine to five or my 26 mm -hmm. hours a week job. Mm -hmm. And then kind of balancing around that, doing some stuff for other arts organizations uh -huh. administratively, teaching a couple students privately, and then figuring out sure. what I want to do as a performer. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying still to figure out that balance of not overbooking myself. Yeah. Is there anything <laughs> particular you do want to do as a performer? Right now, um, I really do want to explore more chamber music. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and then I, I want to have, have a cover band again. A cover band? Yeah, I oh, used nice. to have a cover band with Max. Okay. Um, <laughs> we named it after our favorite theory professor, so it was Funk Blazius nice. was our cover okay. band. And we used to do a lot of like uh, funk and soul and Motown tunes. Great. So I want to do something like that again in Chicago. Did you sing? No, I played <laughs> bass, yeah. <laughs> That's a quick no. <laughs> no. I get very anxious about my voice in general. Yeah. I feel like the bass is a more comfortable yeah. voice for me in a lot of ways. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I think that was good conversation. That was cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, Liz. And yeah, Thank you. bye. Thanks for listening. And remember to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And remember to check out my Patreon page to support my work generally. Thanks. See you next time. Mm -hmm.